0: Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. In this episode, I'm talking to Tress Walmsley of Intergrain, an Australian wheat, barley and oat breeding company. Early in her career, Tress was instrumental in setting up the really quite unique Endpoint Royalty System, which, in Australia, manages intellectual property payments back to plant breeders. And you'll hear from her how this works and what the advantages are for cereal breeders. We'll also talk about slurping udon noodles, developing varieties for regenerative and no-till agriculture, and building an open culture in an organization, and how this leads to a competitive advantage. I hope you enjoy it. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Tress Wormsley, CEO of Intergrain. Perhaps a good place to start is, would you like to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, sure, Hannah. Uh, so Tress Wormsley of Intergrain, and I uh, live in Perth, Western Australia, and I uh, lead a Cereal plant breeding business. And so at the moment, we're in three crops, wheat, barley and oats. Tell me a bit about your background. Were you Western Australia born and bred? And how did you get into plants and plant breeding? What was your route in? So grew up on a farm in Western Australia. And uh, unfortunately, my dad sold the farm when I turned 20. So I didn't actually intend to end up in agriculture. I went off and did a science degree, more in uh, macroinvertebrate biology. And then though I followed my boyfriend, soon to be husband, up to a small country town in Western Australia called Three Springs, which literally only had 314 people living in it, and ended up working for the local government department agricultural office. I think probably, you know, the grains industry was in my blood. And it all came back to me, and I just fell in love with it. And I never left the grains industry after that. So never went back to finish, well, really, to start my PhD and take that path into biology. And so your parents' farm was a,
0: a an arable farm, was it? It was it was grains. It was a
1: wheat and sheep farm, mm-hmm. relatively small, uh, pretty close to Perth. We were only like an hour and a half away. But it still meant that I went to boarding school for high school and that had a big impact on me, you know, taught me that I love travel. And I actually did a gap year between uh, high school and university. So I went to uh, Brazil for 12 months and that was a big eye opener for me.
0: Oh, that sounds great. And then that first role um, after university was in agronomy, right? Tell me how you got from that into the world of plant breeding.
1: So yeah, my first role was—we used to call it a development officer—but really, it was an agronomist. So I would go and help uh, farmers grow better crops. And in that process, I managed a national program called Top Crop. And then one day, I had a boss who kind of came to me and he said, "Tress, you look a little bit bored." We've got this other little project that involves intellectual property and working with all the maltsers and the brewers who have been contributing to the plant breeding program and now we've got a variety to release and everyone thinks they should own a bit of it. So we need someone to come and sort out all the background IP. He told me it would be a job that would probably only take about two weeks. Well, it took much longer than that once we got into it. It was quite an in-depth little project but I really just enjoyed the whole legal framework and understanding about plant breeders rights act and everything that eventually I just said no I want to go down this path so I moved into the commercialization and intellectual property department and ended up managing the grain section for that and then my very last job in in that while working for the government department was actually to set up the company structure for Integrain. So we were basically privatizing or spinning off the wheat breeding program out of the West Australian government. We decided that it had a commercial uh, platform and could basically exit and transition to a private breeding company. And so I set that job up and then resigned and then started as the first employee with Integrain. The role
0: we setting up the intellectual property piece, was that for the federal government or was that for Western Australia? That was for the state government, Western Australia. I understand that as part of that, you set up the endpoint royalty system. Is that correct? Yes. Tell me a little bit about that and what it is and how it works.
1: So in Australia, we established what we call or refer to as the endpoint royalty system in really the early 1990s. I suppose we recognised that we wanted to have a better value capture system using the plant breeders' rights, and everywhere else in the world had really done that system using seed royalties. But in Australia, seed was often traded by individual farmers. It didn't go through a small number of seed traders or certified growers. So we set about saying, okay, how? what would be the most efficient uh system that we could build in australia and so when we looked at our system we recognized that because primarily a lot of the the wheat back then was exported that there was like this the small funnel point which was at the traders so back then there might have been ten thousand wheat growers but at that point there was only one wheat trader it was the awb and so We essentially uh, went to the AWB and had a conversation with them that said, look, if we could set up an endpoint royalty system where you capture and pay the royalty back to the grower, uh, it's the most efficient system that we could run in Australia. And it's really grown from that. Uh, Now we have over 100 grain traders participating in the system. It's an area where as plant breeders, we have actually decided to collectively act in a pre-competitive manner. So we've basically all said for our future growth and survival, we need an efficient value capture system rather than us all individually do it. We've actually come together. We operate as a national uh, collection system. We manage it together And it's become a really powerful system that we have in Australia.
0: That's a really unusual system. But is it complex? How does it work?
1: It's a pretty simple system. It's not a lot of people go, oh, can you explain this system thing? And I'm like, okay, it's it's not rocket science. It's actually when the grower uh, buys the seed, he takes a variety license. That variety license uses a combination of the Plants Breeders' Rights Act, and contract law that basically says to the grower, when you sell grain of that variety, you authorise an endpoint royalty to be deducted at the first point of sale. So it's just a very easy but relatively unique uh, system that we've got operating in Australia. How is it different to a levy system? So a levy generally is established through a piece of legislation which says you have to do this. It's like a tax, essentially. Whereas the plant breeders rights, uh, the endpoint royalty uses the power of the plant breeders rights act. And we combine that, as I said, with contract law, uh, so that the breeder controls the system. Each breeder, uh, sets their own endpoint royalty rate for their variety. So there's a lot more control to the individual plant breeders. This is unique to Australia, is that right? Why do you think nobody else has adopted it? We did have that advantage of when we originally set it up that we had the power of being able to have wheat all be collected by the awB and so we we didn't have to go and initially get a hundred different grain traders to agree to the process you know we we tackled the big one, AWB, and then we tackled as it got deregulated, there are four or five other big ones, so we tackled them. So we were able to incrementally build this system. But I think the other unique thing is is that Australia has always had this philosophy of where growers farmer to farmer trade seed. We recognised the value of that and we worked collectively with the growers to demonstrate with them why this was a really important system for them. Okay. And and I guess the other
0: question is, because you said a levy is more of a tax, so that's compulsory, whereas this doesn't sound like it's compulsory in quite the same way. So does that not lead to people trying to work their way around it or claim that they grew a variety which had a lower charge associated with it than the one they actually grew. You know, there must be a bit of
1: game playing goes on. There's always game playing and, and even, you know, people like to dodge tax. So, you know, it happens in every system. You know, we, we all like to sometimes be creative, shall we say. We do have ongoing compliance programs. We acknowledge that there's really two avenues. So so one and the first that we always place most effort into is about demonstrating the value to the growers. If the growers understand the benefit of paying their endpoint royalties and understand that that gets driven back into the plant breeding programs, then attitudinally we hope that they buy into the concept and therefore we have increased compliance. But there's always the reality and sometimes it's actually a genuine accident where someone delivers a variety they've had a mix up or their truck drivers had a mix up or something like that and they do say it's the wrong variety so we are also looking at bringing in new technologies where we can at the receivable point uh, basically do a rapid test to determine or to check what the variety is
0: would that be based on appearance or would it be based on you know genetics
1: You could actually do both of those. Intergrain is actually working with a company called Zoom Agri uh, and theirs is actually using machine learning visual appearance. So, yes, we've been scanning many, many thousands of individual grains of the different varieties so that we can develop an algorithm uh, that can, within two minutes, determine the variety. That's really clever stuff. Yeah. It's like my first little uh, flurry into machine learning but uh, it's quite exciting and when like I initially brought this project concept back to our business and said to the plant breeders oh there's a company in Argentina that actually says it can scan our things in two minutes and tell us what the variety is their eyes all kind of glossed back and went oh yeah Tress this is one of your dream projects okay So, yeah, it's been quite funny when I've been able to say to them, well, it's
0: worked. So you went from the endpoint royalty system and intellectual property, and then you became the CEO of Integrain. So tell me about Integrain. What's the scope of its activities?
1: So initially when I came into Integrain, I was actually only second in charge. So I was like the deputy CEO for the first four or five years. And uh, eventually I, I got to be uh, selected for the top job. So I've done CEO's role since 2012. And initially when we set up Integram, we were only wheat breeding. Then two years later, we bought in barley breeding. And actually this week, we are formally announcing that we've started an oat breeding program. And we have been selected to transition the oat breeding program out of the government uh, into a private breeding business. So it's actually pretty exciting to see the growth as we you know, go into another crop. Presumably, you know, as a for-profit company, there is a PL
0: and l measure of success. But then in addition, um, from what I understand, you you have some other ways that you would consider yourself successful.
1: That's right. So in Integrain, we actually have a pretty unique situation where we only have two shareholders One of those is the West Australian government and the other is the Grains Research and Development Corporation. So the GRDC also operates basically uh, on a grower levy. So both of our shareholders provide us a, a relatively unique position where the way that they see that they get value out of their investment in Intergrain is not by us returning them, you know, just a pure dividend, but they actually say, no, we want you to deliver value by the products that you provide to the grains growers. So it allows us this fantastic capacity to be able to drive the profits and expand the business and be very focused, know very clearly that our customer, who we are going to deliver value to, is the Australian grain grower. And, and are you focused mostly in Western Australia or is, is, is the your focus national? It's very much a national breeding program and, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of the primary reasons is actually risk management. And so within Australia, we may have a, a drought on the West Coast and a good season on the East Coast. So to buffer, I suppose, your revenue and your exposure to these seasonal impacts, it's really good to have a national spread of products. But also within Australia, there are many varieties that actually perform well in Western Australia, just as well in Victoria. And then the other reason is that if you run a national testing program, one thing that has a very big impact, because we have very large G by E, season makes a huge impact. And so by testing across multiple environments in Australia, we expose our genetics to a number of different season events. So we can actually gather a lot more data and more powerful data, which allows us to breed for basically yield stability and a really broadly adapted variety.
0: You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We 're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security and more sustainable agriculture. Now back to the podcast When we spoke previously, you were describing how you have you know you have a national focus so there's a whole load of different uses that that grain is going to once it's been grown and, and harvested. But within that, there are some specific niches that you mentioned previously. And one of them we talked about was udon noodles. Tell me a little bit more about that, because that was a a really good example.
1: Yeah. So our udon noodle story is one probably that we're somewhat famous for. So Intergrain is really one of the leading global suppliers of the Japanese and Korean udon noodle uh, products. Uh, apart from western australia the udon noodle grain is only grown in in japan and it really has come about through this beautiful story of working really closely with your uh, end user and so it was back in the 80s when we had a cereal chemist who recognized that the japanese in particular were coming down to western australia and sourcing one particular variety and so he did a fact finding trip to the market and learnt on that that there were some unique chemical properties in a particular variety that made a good udon noodle. And so he brought that information back and then worked with the plant breeders, and over the last 30 years, we've really refined the genetic gene pool to make a very specific breeding program that strongly services those unique characteristics.
0: So what does make a perfect udon noodle?
1: To make a perfect udon noodle, we say that basically you have to have it's it's called mochi mochi and essentially you have to have the perfect color. So it has to be this lovely creamy color. Can't be too yellow and it can't be too white. It's also got to have brightness. So you don't want a udon noodle, noodle that sits in your bowl and goes dull. It's got to maintain this beautiful glossy brightness of cream. And then there's the texture taste. So when you uh, slurp it in over your lips and it's actually, it's impolite if you don't slurp an udon noodle. So it's like you practice your slurping. It must feel smooth as it passes through your lips. And then the final test is is you, you take a piece of the udon noodle, you put it between your back teeth molars and you, press down on it really quite slowly, but not enough to cut it. And then you release the pressure and it should bounce back to its original shape. And that makes perfect udon noodle. Now that actually has a lot of chemical and physical properties all wrapped up in it. Some, which we still don't understand, but like a lot of people say, oh, really, can you really pick a difference between varieties? And the Japanese take this so seriously that they send down sensory experts every year to come and work with us and uh, test individual lines to tell us which ones, you know, make the perfect udon noodle. That's, I mean, that's, it's incredibly precise, isn't it, the requirements?
0: Was the variety that's being grown in Australia based on a Japanese variety or a Korean variety?
1: No, it wasn't. So it actually comes from Australian genetics. It was a variety called gamenya, And yeah, but over time we've improved it. Now we have one particular variety, which we actually called Supreme, which is very much recognized as, you know, making the best udon noodle. Supreme udon noodles.
0: <laughs> yeah. There was another example, which I'd be keen to touch on, Australia is one of the leading countries in terms of adoption of regenerative and no-till agriculture. It's certainly much more wide, a much more widespread thing in Australia than it is, for example, in the UK, albeit I think there is growing interest everywhere. But it must require different varieties for growing in that system. So would you just tell me a little bit about the varieties that you bred for the no-till system and how that fits into Australian agriculture more widely?
1: I think... The way we've gone about breeding for no-till varieties is we haven't set out to breed the perfect no-till variety, but very much when a plant breeder uh, conducts his field trialling, we want to mimic the farmer practice. And so because no-till has been, particularly in Western Australia, a a farming system tool that we've used for 30-plus years now, our breeding selection process has shifted towards selecting varieties that suit a no-till variety. And so by that, I think some of the characteristics that we've probably inadvertently selected for are things like, you know, often in a no-till system, our growers are dry planting. And so we need a variety that uh, we don't know when it's going to germinate. So it could germinate on basically the end of April, or if we don't have rain, it may not germinate until early June. So we've, we've been trying to, I suppose, find varieties that have that yield stability, that have early vigour, long coleoptiles. They're good at getting up and out of the ground um, and utilising that first burst of moisture. So it's not that we've directly set out to say, oh, we've got to breed a no-till variety, but it's one of those great things of where plant breeding and technology change come together and over time, it's this immersion process that just happens. So it's
0: more like a a selection pressure rather than a
1: a specific targeted
0: intervention in some ways.
1: Absolutely correct. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. You're more on top of the breeding thought than me. (laughs) Tell me a bit about the culture
0: of integrain, because I think that is also quite distinctive um, from, from the way you've described it to me.
1: So one of the unique values that we've worked really hard, I suppose, to build and and engender in our business is an open, collaborative approach. You know, it kind of has come about in many ways. One, because I think I'm, I, as the leader, am naturally like that. I'm hopeless at keeping a secret, so, you know, I I can't keep secrets or store information and and I really despise those people who use information as power. To me, like that's the wrong philosophical approach. But it's also come about because we, because of our unique shareholders and we're in little old Australia or little young Australia, I suppose is what we should really call it, but we're somewhat removed from some of those big global, uh, you know, international businesses We recognize that. And so we say, okay, we've got to be really good at leveraging and connecting and building collaborative uh, systems with other researchers. So, but internally, we have a research manager whose fundamental job is to be scanning uh, the world to see what research is going on and fostering those connections. Like a really good example of where we are true to our collaborative and open approach is. We have worked with uh, La Trobe University and Agriculture Victoria uh, to develop a Wheaton Valley genomics platform. And you know, this platform, it was an expensive uh, system to set up for genotyping. We, we think that it's actually a pretty good tool uh, and uh, has some great advances on some of the other platforms that are out there. We recognised that many researchers, particularly in universities or small breeding programs or you know little government department run programs, they would never have the opportunity to build one of these platforms. So we're making our platform via uh, Illumina uh, to be available to the global research world. And in return, what we get out of that is an opportunity to engage and, you know, work with some of these researchers and they publish a paper on their work, then that is easily translatable back into our system. So there's a win-win, uh, but it's a different approach to where I think many particularly big global corporations hide away their IP and keep it as, you know, their own internal competitive advantage. We've done the complete opposite and we've said, right, we're going to make it open and get a competitive advantage by sharing.
0: Uh Aha. And that's an interesting and completely different way to think about a commercial organisation, isn't it? Has it been well received so far?
1: It is. I think uh, we're actually starting to see some fairly big players starting to, in particular, our genomics approach. But we do hear it um, just locally in Australia that many of the research organisations say, you know, Tress, you really are an open and collaborative organisation, and we like working with you. So, you know that makes me proud.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to move on to some general questions now. One of the things that would be interesting to talk about is if you went right back to the beginning of your career, are there any things that you would choose to do differently, knowing now what you do?
1: I've actually been—I've been satisfied with my career. One of the interesting things was is well, I've been with Integrate now for twelve years, and you know a lot of people say, "Oh, you know, where's your next job?" And in my mind, my next job was actually, you know, not saying that it was soon, but it was always going to be. I'd like to go and do an overseas posting. But now, because of COVID, and because Perth has just turned out being one of the best places, it makes you reevaluate, and you think, ah. Oh, maybe I won't take a global posting. Uh-huh. <laughs> I have so much genuine pleasure of coming to work every single day and working with the Intergrain team. And we're still on this amazing growth path and doing some crazily exciting things that it's like, yeah, my cup of tea is not finished here yet. Oh, that's great. That's a re- that's really nice. Um I don't, I think there are many people
0: out there in the world who would envy that energy and enthusiasm for your, for your roles. <laughs> Good for you. And I guess an interesting question is for the future: where do you see opportunities arising? You know, what looks exciting
1: or what looks um, what's attracting your interest? What's amazing to me is just the growth and the acceleration of all new high throughput phenotyping methods and genomics. Uh, those types of things are exciting. Half the time I don't understand them. They're like, you know, way outside my science understanding. I think an area that has potential to capitalise on some more scientific improvements is probably in the space of serial chemistry. Like we've just invested quite a lot of money setting up our own internal serial chemistry lab. And you can just see that A number of the pieces of equipment are still the same pieces of equipment that were developed 50 years ago, and so you know there's just I think a lot of opportunity to you know improve the throughput, to embed genomics in it. Um, So yeah, to really radically change how we do serial chemistry.
0: So last question from me: Are there any influences you're particularly grateful for, be it in work or outside of work, as you've been on this journey?
1: Yeah, I would always have to say my mum because she actually had a number of community leadership positions and so she really, I suppose, demonstrated to me, well, in my mind it was normal that that I had a working mum that took leadership positions and just was always, well, we can do that, we can do that. So she probably gave me my can-do attitude. But then as I, I suppose, came into my my career at every point there was probably a one strong mentor who you know I looked up to got guidance from and I think they they change as you go through your career uh, but they're always essential to have that feels like it's a really good
0: place to leave it um, and I'm sure when other people listen to this they will be inspired by what you've said because I think there's some really great examples in there of um, doing things differently on that note Thank you very much, Tress Walmsley, CEO of Integrate.
1: Thanks, Hannah.
0: You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues and please help others in the plant science community to find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. I'd love to hear from you if you want to suggest people you'd like me to interview. You can contact me on Twitter at PBSint or on Instagram at PBS underscore int. Until next time, stay well.